Hi everyone, welcome to the first podcast of Dougal Lamont's Substack, Clean Slate, New Ideas for Justice and Democracy. Really, this is about pushing back against you know, bad ideas, propaganda, junk economics, junk ideas, and misinformation that is rampant everywhere. Uh, because really, when we talk about how we need to fix our problems, or even if we talk about democracy, we need a shared reality to work together. So part of this is about cutting through the propaganda and revealing the actual workings of politics and history and finance and the law, and what people actually did, and not just what they want us to believe they did. Or, you know, it's it's about getting around the self-promotion that is actually a huge part of both history <laughs> and even political science. So I wanted to start with an issue that I think is actually the most important thing we can do, do to address Canada's economic challenges right now, which is to change the policy of the Bank of Canada in the way that it analyzes and deals with the economy. So that's where I'll start. Uh, it's uh, the single most important thing we can do to address Canada's economic challenges. And that's to follow the advice of an economist named William White and modernize the Bank of Canada's monetary policy. Because you know, some economic indicators in Canada are ripping higher right now, but there's no denying the struggles the Canadians are facing. And the current policies of the Bank of Canada are massively adding stress to Canadian businesses and families alike in the name of fighting inflation. And it's important to understand why they're doing this wrong. Uh, because what's happening is the Bank of Canada is punishing Canadian borrowers who are being crushed by inflation already. But that inflation is really being driven by international factors like energy and supply chains, as well as a by a big asset bubble and domestic debt crisis here in Canada. And that asset bubble and debt crisis, those are the result of not just a couple of years or a, a decade's worth, but multiple decades worth of questionable monetary policy by the Bank of Canada, which is now being questioned by some very, very significant figures uh, in economics around the world. But it also explains articles uh, like a recent one in, in, that, that ran out on uh, CBC. This is just from October 7th, saying, you know, alarm bells are ringing, what markets are trying to warn us about the economy. You know, it says economic data has been resilient, but financial markets don't believe the numbers. And that's part of what this, this, this whole article is about. In July 2022, Edward Chancellor, who is a, uh, he's a historian and in fact was a financial advisor himself, warned, quote, it will turn out to be largely impossible to normalize interest rates without collapsing the economy, end quote. Not because of the actions of elected governments and officials, but because of more than two decades of monetary policy. And monetary policy is what the Bank of Canada and central banks do. You know, and central banks are supposed to be independent and free from political influence. But this is what Chancellor said in this uh, great article. You can, you can see the link in, uh, on, online. He said, quote, By aggressively pursuing an inflation target of 2% and constantly living in horror of even the mildest form of deflation, they not only gave us the ultra-low interest rates with their unintended consequences in terms of the everything bubble, says Chancellor, they also facilitated a misallocation of capital of epic proportions. They created an over-financialization of the economy and a rise in indebtedness. Putting all this together, they created and abetted 
an environment of low productivity growth, end quote. So this is what's been happening. Again, not just for the last couple of years, not just under, but not just for the last 10 years, but for decades. And this is a huge problem for Canada's economy, but it also tells us that this is part of what we need to address and unwind. It's an enormous challenge, but this is what we need to do. So one of the first steps we need to do is to immediately reform the Bank of Canada's monetary policy. Because the current practice of cranking interest rates up and down like it's a volume knob is not only ineffective, it's actively harmful. And look, that's the recommendation of a very prominent economist named William White from August of this year. He wrote, Stimulative monetary policy has had a variety of unintended and unwelcome consequences that can only worsen credit booms and busts, potential financial instability, fiscal unsustainability, a progressive loss of central bank independence, growing inequality of wealth and opportunity, and a slower growth rate of potential output. As well, the threat posed by these unintended problems have accumulated over time. Exit and the renormalization of policy has become ever harder to achieve. To sum up, the current monetary system has trapped us on a path we do not wish to follow because it leads inevitably to ever bigger problems. This is why fundamental reform is needed. And you can read a link to his paper uh, on the free paper on my website. It's at ineteconomics.org, uh, a fantastic site. Uh, but what White says is that central banks need to focus more on financial systems and debt and not just on short-term inflation targets. As he points out, because of the tools central banks are using, he says, quote, solving today's problems also makes tomorrow's problems worse. That's what we're dealing with. The reason the Bank of Canada and other central banks are doing this this way is because the economic models they're using are crude and they're terribly out of date. We cannot keep stimulating the economy by turning interest rates up and down as politicians are still asking us to do. People may think of low interest rates as making debt cheap, right? but so-called easy money actually drives up prices and it drives up the amount of debt that you take on. So this is kind of paradoxical, but welcome to economics and finance. Low interest doesn't mean lower cost debt. So let's say you're going to buy a $300,000 house. Instead of just taking out the same mortgage for $300,000 with a lower rate, which is what people assume will happen, lower interest rates actually mean an increase in debt across the economy. Because when you crank those interest rates down, whether someone decides to lend to you depends on how much you can pay per month. And that amount determines what they'll lend you, not what you can afford. So borrowers who already qualified for loans before can now borrow even more. Corporate borrowers can use debt to finance mergers and acquisitions which results in greater concentration of ownership and less competition. At the lower end of the borrowing scale, these ultra-low interest rates and easy money mean that debt penetrates further and more deeply into the economy. So again, there's a whole bunch of people who were able to borrow before, and they can borrow a whole bunch more, and there are people who could never borrow before who all of a sudden qualify. So that's what happens when you get these ultra-low interest rates. So all of a sudden, all sorts of folks have debt, access to debt they didn't before. 
But the other thing about that is that because they have all that money, it drives up the price of what they're buying, which is usually housing. There's a direct relationship there. So the same payment that once financed a $275,000 mortgage at, say, 8%, um, will all of a sudden, at 4%, finance a $550,000 home. And all of a sudden, people who couldn't obtain loans at all before start getting them. So let's say if a borrower can make a $2,000 monthly payment, they can get a 30-year mortgage at 8%. That will finance a home of about $275,000. But if you cut that mortgage rate to 4%, the same payment buys a $550,000 home. You end up paying twice as much in terms of the price for the house for the bank to still make the same amount of money they would at 275000 And as William White put it, he said, financial bubbles have created ever larger bubbles which threaten future growth prospects. And one of the defining features of a financial bubble or a financial mania is that the asset being traded, the thing that you're buying that people are going crazy over, can't actually be used for its intended purpose anymore. And this has actually been true for centuries. There's an incredible book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It's never gone out of print. It's both funny and scary, but it talks about a whole bunch of centuries worth of manias when people bought stuff. Today, it would be cryptocurrency or real estate uh, or what are those dumb monkey, <laughs> those, those sad ape EFTs. I mean, honestly, when people are buying and trading that stuff, it's not worth anything. All it is is a bubble. And the same thing has happened in the past with tulip bulbs and baby beanie babies and baseball cards. But when it comes to housing, it actually means that homes and condos end up sitting empty in a housing crisis. So you end up with entire buildings being built and they all become an Airbnb. Because it's all institutional investors, it's not people actually investing for their own sake. And this is a huge problem in multiple ways, because it's also, so much of this is outside the realm of democratic political decision-making. It is a huge challenge when, what happened basically in the 1970s, a huge amount of control over the economy was handed over to central banks. And central banks, like the Bank of Canada, are supposed to make their decisions completely separately from the government. No elected official is allowed to call the shots. And the basic idea here is you're supposed to keep the power from creating money, which is the power that the Bank of Canada has through monetary policy, away from the people who spend it through fiscal policy, which is what governments do and elected politicians do. There is good news in this, that if central banks were to change their policies, as William White recommends, to recognize the economic reality we're living in of debt and banks, which it doesn't do right now, we'll at least be able to start responding to the crisis we're in. There are lots of policy measures we could be taking, but they will not work unless the Bank of Canada, which sets interest rates for the whole economy, changes tack and starts to follow White's suggestions. Now, not only does William White know what he's talking about, there is arguably no one in the world who knows more about central banks than he does. White is currently a fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. 
He was born in Kenora, Ontario in 1943, and he worked for various central banks for 39 years, most recently serving as chief economist for the central bank, for all central bankers, the Bank for International Settlements, or BIS. His other time included working at the Bank of England and at the Bank of Canada. And for several years, as an economic advisor to the Bank for International Settlements, White warned Alan Greenspan, who was the chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, and other central bankers, starting in 2003, for five years, that there was a financial crisis coming. And nobody wanted to hear it. So you would be challenged to find anyone in the world who has more credibility on these issues than William White. There are other economists who have been outspoken critics of the current state of macroeconomics because they utterly failed to predict the 2008 crisis. And there are more people who are also speaking up about the problem with central banks and what they've been doing for a long time and how they're making the problem worse and harder to solve. One of the highest profile is Paul Romer, who is the former chief economist of the World Bank. And in 2016, he wrote a paper called The Trouble with Macroeconomics. In it, he condemned the total failure of our current mainstream orthodox economics, which are all taught currently in universities, to predict complete disasters like the global financial crisis. When in previous crises, economic models have been tossed for much smaller failure prediction, like getting rid of Keynes in the 1970s. Romer wrote in this incredible paper from 2016, the non-committal relationship with the truth revealed by these methodological evasions and the, quote, less than totally convinced, unquote, dismissal of fact goes so far beyond postmodern irony that it deserves its own label. I suggest post-real. So you have a critique by the former chief economist for the World Bank saying the economic formulas used by central banks to run our economies are completely disconnected from reality, that they're just dismissing facts. And you also have the former advisor to the Bank of International Settlements, who warned of the global financial crisis in 2008 when no one else did, offering up some very sensible recommendations and reforms. It is impossible to imagine people with better credentials, and the fact that William White predicted the single most important and disruptive economic event in a century, when virtually no one else did, only adds to the cachet. Now, the other thing about this is changing the way we deal with emergencies and financial crises in Canada, because we can't have a repeat of what the Bank of Canada did, starting under the Harper Conservative government in 2008 and 2009. There was this whole story about how Canada's economy was so amazing because we had strong bank regulation, and that that saved the banks. The reality was Canada actually had a bailout of $114 billion, comparable in size to the bailout in the U.S. And in fact, they went further. The government of Canada and the Bank of Canada backstopped Canada's banks by $200 billion, even, even as they went on to demand austerity from provincial governments for years. And part of what the problem we're facing now is, is that that laid down a practice in central banks for dealing with these crises this way, is that they haven't allowed the reckoning to happen. They haven't actually said, look to investors who, who gambled and failed. I'm sorry, investors, we're not going to bail out investors. We're going to make sure that everything's stable, but we have to stop propping up this bubble 
and propping up asset prices because that is basically what's been happening for 20 plus years. The other is that these bailouts established a practice, which is that when banks get into trouble for lending carelessly, because interest rates are so low, they don't face the consequences of their risks that go wrong the way any other business in the free market would. So let's just be very clear about this. This is a distinction. Let's imagine two different kinds of investors. If you're an investor and you buy into equity, you buy shares in a company and the company goes under, you lose your money. But there's an expectation that when you're investing in bonds, you will always get paid back no matter what. But there's a real problem here that if all these investments are going sour, the credibility of those investments was a huge problem in the first place. So what's been happening is, again, banks don't face the consequences of their risks gone wrong the way any other business in the free market would. Instead, they can take all the mortgages that are going sour because people are missing payments and sell them to the Bank of Canada or possibly CMHC, which is Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And the banks then get newly created government money the Bank of Canada or CMHC buys up all these bundled up mortgages, but the people will lose their house. So the banks can sell the troubled mortgages to the central bank and get new money in return to lend out again. And in 2008-2009, the Bank of Canada and the Conservative government of Stephen Harper guaranteed a $200 billion backstop. And this actually set a pattern in motion that kept real estate speculation, not housing, but real estate speculation, going in Canada and continuing to make life completely unaffordable, but not just life, the cost of business. Because one of the things that happens is that when housing goes up, you need a, a higher wage to pay for it. When your rent goes up, you need a higher salary to pay for it. So the increased costs of housing and rent are driving up labor costs. And that doesn't just make it hard on local businesses for hiring, that makes it hard for Canada to compete because we're paying to support the debt payments on a huge bubble. The other thing about it, that that is the new model for central bank intervention. It's not just adjusting interest rates. It that in the last 10 years, as people have said, as analysts have said, this is not the way central banks used to work. Our economy does not work the way it used to, even 15 years ago. It is the new model for central bank intervention, which is not just adjusting interest rates up and down. It has been for central banks to print hundreds of billions of dollars in Canada and around the world trillions of dollars, which has gone to banks to lend more. And some of it is to keep propping up what you think of as zombie debt. And so our housing crisis is not being driven by supply or demand in Canada. It's being driven by speculation and real estate due to what is known as easy money. And this was particularly the case during the pandemic. But when interest rates are low, the amount of loans go up. The number of loans go up as well. And the amount of those loans go up because basically what's happening, banks are going for quantity instead of quality. So you have a lower quality loan, you have, which is in fact a riskier loan. And that is the problem right there. That Interest is a price on risk. The riskier the loan that you're giving out usually means the higher the interest rate. But what's happening is the opposite, is that we're pretending that these investments are low risk 
when the fact is the fact that we're pouring money into them uh, actually means that you're going to get a temporary boost, but in the long run, not even the long run, if the long run is three years, it's not going to work out and it's going to fail. And so it is debt from all this easy money that is driving the economic anxiety in Canada and around the world from inequality and joblessness because people can't get jobs or they can't afford housing. The housing crisis, inflation, inflation is being driven by this debt because people have bought so much, have spent so much debt buying all these assets that they have to pay it all back now. And it's also driving the lack of economic competitiveness. Workers can't afford housing, so they demand raises. Companies can't afford the overhead. They can't afford the debt. So this is much more than a matter of just monetary policy, monetary policy being what central banks do because monetary policy underpins the entire economy. And we are talking about the stability of the entire Canadian economy at a time of multiple crises. Like we have to recognize our economy is being deliberately destabilized by Russia and Putin with higher energy prices because of the war in Ukraine to drive inflation, to disrupt global food markets. We need to recognize that invasions and war have that effect they have they have they create shocks around the world to energy and to prices and that is part of the warfare that russia and other states are pursuing because they're trying to use financial warfare as well now during and after the great depression canada and other countries ensured that we would always have the capacity to stabilize the economy in times of national or international crisis by having the government of Canada and the provinces work together with the Bank of Canada and the private sector to invest, to stabilize. This is not a zero-sum game where for one Canadian to win, another Canadian has to lose. We already have the legislative tools to stabilize and reinforce Canada's economy. The issue is ideology and policy when central bank models are so bad that they essentially demand human sacrifice. It used to be recognized that inflation was at least a double-edged sword. Uh, there's a book called The Big Trade-Off, an American economist named Arthur Oaken, who was not just an advisor to President Nixon, he was also on President Nixon's enemies list. So that tells you a bit about his past. But he wrote that the crusade against inflation demands the sacrifice of output and employment. That was in the 1970s. It was recognized, look, if you're going to, fight against inflation the way central banks want to, you are actually going to make people unemployed and you're going to reduce the capacity of the economy. Even more important, it should be recognized that inflation affects different constituencies and the parts of the economy very differently. And that doesn't happen either. There's a, a great uh, economist named Hajun Chang, originally from South Korea, uh, I believe in the UK now. He's written some great books just about economics explains all sorts of different theories and takes a really pluralistic approach to it, right? There isn't just one, there's, there are different theories out there and people have different ways of doing things. And he writes, a tough control on inflation is a two-edged sword for workers. It protects existing incomes better, but it reduces their future incomes. It is only pensioners and others, including significantly the financial industry, whose income derived from financial assets with fixed returns for whom inflation is a pure blessing. And that's 
why William White's recommendations for reform are so important and why they need to be acted on with all due speed. It will take enormous time and energy and ingenuity to unwind the multiple crises we are in, which is why it is so important to get started right away. If I were advising the Prime Minister of Canada and the Finance Minister, I would suggest they take a meeting with William White because he holds the keys to unwinding the crisis over which we have the most control, Canada's financial system. And it's an opportunity for Canada to be a leader among developed countries in adopting these changes. It is incredibly urgent. We're in a time of crisis, and yet we are still using all the same plans, ideas, and ideologies we had from more than a decade ago. This is about responding to reality. And frankly, I think uh, that could be the subtext of our entire, of my entire podcast, as well as uh, my blog. It's about responding to reality. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, stay tuned. We have lots more interesting stuff to come. If I can, I can want to be able to demystify these ideas. I've always taken the approach that there's no idea that's so complicated that it can't be broken down and explained to just about everybody. And it's really about making that effort to do that, to make ideas accessible. Um, because so much of politics and justice and the law and economics is about making things sort of mysterious and using vocabulary that's kind of difficult or complicated and really if you do understand what's going on it's sometimes it's alarming but it's really important because once we all start to get on the same page and understand that we've got the same problem together we can start to work on solutions so Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. Please subscribe and consider a paid subscription as well. The, the comments people have been making are really, really wonderful. Great feedback, and I 